Welcome to the S Podcast, and tonight I have two very interesting guests, Richard Watts. Richard, hello, lifelong Evertonian. Hi, Paul. And Matt Slater, Matt Slater from, from The Athletic. Matt, you are well-renowned for your expertise in finance, financial affairs, and obviously you've followed the story at Everton. Uh, you and I have spoken on many occasions about what's been happening, and now all of a sudden we seem to have a, um, a takeover on our hands. We do. I know. Remarkable. <laughs> it's, not, it's not remarkable. It makes complete sense. But you're absolutely right. And uh, thanks very much for having me. No, no, it's, it, it's, it's a great pleasure. Um, I suppose if we'd been having this, this discussion six years ago, it would have been, well, we'd probably think we'd all been drunk in, in the sense that we would be having a discussion where a uh, fired machinery backed by Alicia Usmanov was in a, a forced sale position because it seems to me very much that he is in a forced sale position. And the fact that neither he nor the club have denied that various talks are taking place um, just gives uh, strength to that, um, to that theory, Matt. Yes, it does. I mean, there's, I think there's a few things to, um, to unpick. I suppose there's some yeah. very specific things around about Everton, uh, one, I don't think I'm being remotely controversial here. It's not going very well. Um, so uh, this man is losing a lot of money and he can't be having much fun. So there's never, never underestimate that. Then I think there is the, um, you know, clearly the elephant in the room and that's Alicia Rizmanov and the fact that he is a sanctioned individual and him and Farhad Mashiri are very close, put it that way. So uh, there's that. Uh, and of course, Usmanov uh, is a big sponsor now through his various companies and the, you know, the deal he's got at the training ground, the naming rights option, which we could do a podcast on that. Bravo, Everton, for coming up with that. Um, naming rights option on something that is, doesn't exist yet. But anyway, uh, it's, it's a timely deal. So, so you've, got, you've got Everton losing money, not much fun, it's not really happening. You've got your sanctioned benefactor. So you've got those two things. Then, then let's just go macro, right? The Premier League's for sale. In the last 18 months or so, I was just sort of trying to think of in the last five minutes. So Southampton, Burnley, Newcastle, uh, West Ham. So if I said Southampton... No. There was a small investment in Wolves. Wolves are for sale. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting. There's at least six or seven that have gone, right? So the Premier League's for sale. Uh, and the direction of travel is from the States for a few reasons. And I've, I find myself on podcasts all the time talking about this. So America likes soccer. Uh, buying American sports franchises is really expensive. There's a finite number of them. And uh, they tend to get past 
you know, down from from generations. But it's put the NFL teams, put it that way, um, and they make money. Owning a sports franchise in the states is quite cool. It's all NFL's license to print money. NBA not far off. Major League Baseball um, because they got a salary cap. They distribute talent. They share revenues. Uh, if you want someone to build your stadium, you threaten to move. The taxpayer pays. There's lots of cool things about owning sports franchises in the States, which is why over the last 10, 15, 20 years, they've become an asset class in their own and they have doubled in value there or thereabouts <clears throat> over about a decade. Now, so you've got America. Matt, Matt, can I just stop you there? Yeah. Before, before I bring Richard in. Much of what you say is, well, actually all of what you say is absolutely correct in terms of the situation in the US, but it's not necessarily the same in the UK. No, it's not. But this is, I think this is, this is where I was sort of going in the, okay. the Premier League has become the most, clearly the most sexy place to be if you're interested in soccer. So, so you've got a group of Americans who, rich Americans who like owning sports franchises. The value of sports franchises in America is going up and up and up and up and up. They're not making that many more of them. They're only really making MLS franchises and they're not so good. Maybe a few ice hockey ones to come. So soccer, they have got, right? They have, they've, they've, they have acknowledged that the global game is soccer, that the NFL is great, but it's sort of tapped out a little bit. Soccer's the one, right? Yep. Uh, you've got a World Cup coming. You've got all the demographics in soccer's favour. You know, it, it, it leans left, it leans young, it leads, you know, it, it's, it's a cool sport. Uh, they think that the rest of the world doesn't really know what it's doing. Uh, whenever I speak to Americans, they always, they always think they're going to do it better. Uh, commercially, spotting talent, you name it, selling it around the world. Um, they are already, they're all thinking, and this is investors from everywhere, not just Americans, that we're on the verge of something. They can't quite explain it. And it comes, it pops up in weird ways, be it gambling, esports, streaming, meta, NFTs. They sort of feel that like there was the big, the big revolution in the nineties with cable and pay TV. That was your big bump. We've sort of, we've, we've, we've surfed that wave. There's a sort of feeling there's something coming. Might be the Super League again. So you've got a sort of group of Americans, big amorphous group of them. You like owning sports franchises. It's done quite well for them. They think soccer's the soccer's the game. Even even the the, the foreign exchange rate is in their favour at the moment. Really? English football teams have all got 10, 15% cheaper. Um, so all of these things are sort of adding up to well, if, we, if we're gonna buy a soccer team, where should we buy? The Premier League. Because that's the one that's on NBC. That's the one that their kids are watching in the morning on Saturdays. You know, that's the one where the buzz is. So yeah, I don't want to say perfect storm, but there's there's a lot of things. There's there's ever some specific things, and there are some general Premier League wide things going on. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> not much I would I would, I would disagree disagree with there, Richard. Purely from a an Evertonian's perspective, the the prospect of a change of ownership. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I, I think many Evertonians will be giving a a cautious and in fact often a not so cautious welcome to news that we might get some change in the way our club is run the last six years we have become a byword for mismanagement for money being spent on players for bad decision making processes for confused governance uh, and for an Everton uh, football club where the board 
always said it liked to be seen as the kind of paragons of sound decision making of people who absolutely knew what they're doing. It's you know we've lost all of that reputation, and, and frankly, now I think in the in the world of soccer, are increasingly uh, seen as a, as a bit of a joke in the way that we're run, and none of us as Evertonians take any pleasure in that at all. We all see the consequences of six years now of a pretty rash financial decision-making, particularly in the early years, and the way it's hit us on the pitch. You know, we saw a relegation struggle last season that for a long time, it looked like we weren't going to survive with catastrophic consequences for for the club and for, and actually for Fahad Mashiri personally mm. too. Had we gone down, we shouldn't forget that, that were that to happen again and were, were we to not survive in future, it would have wiped hundreds of millions of pounds off his fortune at a time when, for all the reasons Matt, Matt said, he he simply can't afford to, to take that risk. And, uh, you know, it does give us a chance to get better governance, get better management and get better decision-making into, into our club. I, I'm going to come back to you on that in, term, in, in terms of um, some of the politics because of some of the people that, who, who are involved. Um, Matt, f- from a, uh, a journalist perspective, obviously the Telegraph led the story in terms of uh, John Thornton, but it's probable that there are more people than him who are interested in Everton for the reasons that you've just given. Absolutely. So, you know, kudos to the Telegraph. Good story. Well-sourced, clearly. It's, it's to have that much detail about personalities is, is quite rare. So uh, someone, had, you know, someone has, has spilled the beans there. Um, what was really interesting was that that afternoon, I think we did a follow-up. I was getting calls, unsolicited calls from people that I talk to quite regularly yeah. about, about buying and selling football clubs and what the next American syndicate's going to be and which club's next on the block. I got, like I said, people who wouldn't be, they wouldn't be circulating necessarily the same rumour. That's the other thing I'm always quite wary of. Is it just, I might have three sources, but it might be the same rumour that's just everyone's talking about. It was quite interesting that that afternoon I got kind of, it was like three very different people said, yeah, yeah, there's someone really close to Everton, but they've got the wrong group. It's not that group. I, I think he's. I think Farhad's given exclusivity to someone else. And then, and then by the following day, it was, yeah, there's something unusual going on here. Uh, I think he's sort of promising them all exclusivity. It doesn't really mean anything. You know, this is a very elastic sense of exclusivity. But I, my my guess is there are at least three, four four groups that he's talking to. And the other thing about these groups, because it is now, this is very much the style again, is this, this sort of American approach to sports ownership. They're syndicates. And I think the classic, well, the, the best thing to point you to is the Chelsea sale, right? And I would suggest that some of those people might now be looking at Everton. Um, and it'll be a similar approach. And these groups can form and reform. And a lot of them know each other from banks or from other investments they have. And you have like guys like Kenyon, who are sort of the brokers in this, the front men in this. They'll have been out there for a while. They'll be trying to put these syndicates together. Someone might drop out. Someone might fall out. Some, someone might have a conflict. Someone might actually get a different deal going on somewhere else. Oh, I can't go with you now. There's a lot of that going on. And I also think the thing with Everton is, there's almost been two processes happening as well. There's been the stadium financing process, 
which I think has been the obvious one that everyone was kind of aware of. And, you know, I suppose the good example there to think about would be Spurs. Mm. You know, they managed to, you know, get that, get that finance really, really nicely, just in time, 25 years, low interest rates, not a problem, not a problem for FFP. In fact, it's over 20, 25 years, it's going to be, you know, a, a big cash positive. Everton have obviously been trying to do that. You know, can we secure this at a good rate? And then we can open this amazing stadium. The value of the club goes up. Our annual revenues go up. We just suddenly look cool and sexy. And so there's, but that process has been going on. And it's been obviously complicated by Usmanov. It's been complicated by Everton looking a bit flaky in terms of their status as a Premier League club. Because that's the other thing I wanted to sort of, the point I wanted to make about American investors have, I think, started to reassess good teams, I stress good teams, in good leagues. And if you're a, if you're a big six team, you are almost like an NFL team now because you're not going to get relegated. So you take away the revenue shredding value disaster that is relegation. You take that off the table and you start to sort of think about, ah, most years being in Europe, well, suddenly they start to look like NFL teams. Matt, can I just cut cut across you there? Because I think you raise a really interesting point. I think if you are a big six team, if you're a regular participant, participant in the Champions League you're actually a participant of two franchises yeah yeah that's a good point because you are the participant of the Premier League which you know effectively pays the day-to-day bills and then you're a participant of the Champions League which can pay anything between uh, who knows 40 50 million up to 110 million yeah. if you happen, yeah, yeah. To, happen to be a winner yeah and so you you can you can build a business that is um, competitive in the Premier League, which gives you the qualification into the Champions League on the back of, of, of Premier League revenues. This is this is looking forwards. And then whatever you earn in terms of the Champions League is either available for reinvestment in fixed assets like the stadium, in the case of Tottenham, or it is actually available in terms of dividends for example, Manchester United. And yeah. Manchester United have achieved that actually wow. without regular qualification of European football because they have a third franchise, which is their commercial operation. And that generates actually more income than actually the Premier League or indeed the Champions League does, even if you're a winner of either. So you've got these, this, you, you've gone from a, a position where, um, you may have like, you know, a, a small number of income streams, which traditionally people say is match day, is um, commercial revenue, and then is, is broadcast revenue. To having these like three entirely separate um, revenue streams, co-independent, independent upon each other, obviously. But that that's, that's the, ultimately, as, as an investor, that has to be the objective. That if you, if you have enough money to, be competitive in the Premier League and you know there's a correlation between competitiveness and what you can pay in terms of salaries so if you can afford to pay top three top four salaries you're almost guaranteed to get Champions League qualification that opens up a brand new revenue well not a brand new but opens up a different revenue stream and then if you've got Premier League success plus Champions League success you've got a third revenue stream which is the um commercial revenue 
over and above what everybody else achieves. Yep. Yep. And that yep. and that's what lead that that is what leads to the extraordinary valuations that yep. you get on the top four, five, six clubs. Which that's, is like, and we get and we're gonna get five spots as well. Yeah. So the chances of being, you know, you're now five out of six as against four out of six, which adds to the valuation. So the reason why the top five, six clubs are so much more valuable than say, let's say Everton are seventh. I don't think they are seventh now, but let's say they were seventh. That's the reason why, because the, these two extra revenue streams are available to them. And Everton are a million miles away from that. They are, they are, um, but nothing lasts forever. And, um, you know, United are doing their best to sort of try and disprove the too big to fail theory. Chelsea, we shall see, right? There's there's going to be a change at Chelsea. Arsenal will appear to be sort of putting it back together again. But look, you can still, I think, make a profitable business out of being, you know, top seven, top eight, top nine. Because if you are getting into the Conference League, Europa League, it's a it's a building block. It's somewhere to it's somewhere to sort of you know kind of start from. And it's interesting to me that 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 Wes Edens and and and, and so here you're at Villa. Mm-hmm. You, you know you've got you've got quite a bright investor that's just buying into into West Ham, Dave Kratinsky. Of course, Newcastle. You know, I suppose that's probably the club you were thinking of that's knocked you off your your seventh position. Um, and I think there's a few other clubs in there. Let's see. Let's see how Leeds get on when they when I think they do move full time to to American uh, American syndicate ownership, the 49ers group. Yeah. Um, so so let, let's 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 keep an eye on Leeds as well. So so you're right. It's getting quite congested. I, I think you. I think just the big six have obviously been that way for sort of five ten years now, and it is unfair. It is it is unfair, and it is compounding this sort of advantage they have. But. You know, every now and then they give you they give you a glimpse. They give you know they're they're not they're not infallible. Um, but I, I, I agree time. with that. I, I, so, so to cut in, I, I agree with that. I, I think there there is room as Leicester show for getting finishing fifth two seasons in a row. Uh, West Ham look like they've come close to cutting into that as well for a team to get into that. I mean, what's remarkable about Man United over the last couple of years is actually how that commercial juggernaut has survived some absolutely appalling and embarrassing on-the-pitch performances where Man United have often felt a bit like Everton with a bit more money uh, in how badly they've, they've managed their, their squad and their transfer dealings. And the... But, but you know, they, they got Ronaldo. He's an icon and a massive and a massive commercial asset. And maybe that's kept that going but he, he's not going to stay around forever as well so at the moment for and for the last few years Liverpool regrettably and City have felt pretty untouchable but I, I agree with Matt I think there are options for clubs to get into that what it takes is a level of commercial acumen a level of organisation on the pitch and kind of getting everything aligned I mean, let's not forget had we had this conversation six or seven years ago Liverpool would have been the club most likely to drop out of the top six at that point. And they were, they're all, their running was a mess. And before Klopp came, they, were, they weren't great on the football side either. And FSG has done a remarkable job, annoyingly, at putting them together. And, you know, that, that can happen to other clubs. That can happen to other clubs as well. It could happen to Everton. It could easily happen to Newcastle, given the amount of money that they've got to spend. It does feel to me like we're almost developing not just a top six, albeit they are well ahead. We're developing a top two or three who are guaranteed Champions League qualification every year. And Chelsea will need to work really hard to stay in, stay in that. 
we're developing a competitive fringe of clubs underneath that who could, you know, Spurs, who are wholly dependent on a manager who never stays more than two years in, in any job anywhere. Uh, Arsenal, who look quite good at the moment, but have clearly got some, some vulnerability. Uh, West Ham, who again, uh, feeling similar about it then. But, and it feels to me, it's not that far from Everton for getting into that grouping. It takes three or four years of smart acquisitions, smart on the pitch and some internal consistency. And we could, it is realistic to get into into that group. And that, that will then significantly up our value in a world where, as Matt says, football clubs are increasingly being, becoming an asset class and just owning the club in itself is seen as worth making money. What was interesting is that I always assumed Mishiri would want to sell, but he wouldn't want to sell until Bramley Moore Dock was finished because that was the only way he would have a credible chance of making the money back that he's put into to the club, given how badly some of it has been spent. And I, but I, I completely agree with the analysis that you know events in Ukraine have really forced his hand and he's now must be negotiating from a pretty weak position. And he, his main motivation in all of this will be trying to salvage as much of the money he's put into Everton as possible because he will need, one guesses, he will need some liquidity pretty quickly. Yeah. So let's, let, let's look back historically as, as to how much money he's put in and perhaps the reasons why that money hasn't achieved the results that he thought he might. Matt, I, I mean, I, I've got my own view in terms of what the figures are, and I don't want to embarrass you by asking you if you don't have those figures. I'm quite happy to put them out myself. Um, yeah. In terms of how much he's put into the club and in terms of how much yeah. he's likely to take out of the club at the point of sale, how, how does that, that look like to you? Uh yeah, you're right. You, you've got those, I know you've got them sort of etched into your brain. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm unusual well, is, in that sense. Is, is the, the shorthand version, is, isn't about 350 million he's down, but it could be more, isn't it? What do we think? Well, he's, what, what's, it, depends, what's it depends what he's going to sell at. So, yeah. you know, the, the idea that he sells something at five, or sells the club right. at five yeah, million. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's probably. Uh, 300, 320 million down by on the, on the basis of my figures. And of course, then you have to ask yourself, well, why would somebody do that? Well, the reason why somebody would do that is because you're cutting, you're, you're cutting short your yeah. future, future liabilities. He's still yes. probably got somewhere between four and 500 million pounds to find um, yeah. to complete Bramley Moore. For, for the stadium, yeah. Yeah. But he's yeah. also got, you know, this year's losses, next year's losses, and probably the following year's losses to to yeah. fund in the absence of, of player sales, which you know obviously from a no business person wants to sell their primary assets in order to fund you know current losses because that's just a, a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So um, obviously uh, the situation in, in Ukraine has had a big impact yeah. on him. But it's I, personally, I think it's only accelerated what was the inevitable. Yeah, and, and, and look at a alternative scenario which we were very, very close to, which is Calvert Lewin's doesn't get that header, and that Burnley get a late, late equaliser in their game, and we'd have gone down, and then the gap wouldn't have been three hundred and fifty million; it would have been seven hundred and fifty million. Yeah, yeah. I think that I, I, you, there's lots of good points in your in your answer, Paul. Um, I think um, 
the first thing to say is okay let's 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 think what's everton worth right so it's this is an art not a science i've written whole stories about this and there are various formulas and and then you'll find someone that says oh i don't i never use those i never use and everyone you know everyone's got their sort of vague vague rule of thumb it's a multiple of revenue basically and then whichever analyst you employ will do something clever with stadium capacity or number of likes you've got or social media followers or the amount of transfer debt you're owed but it's it's basically a multiple of revenue and this goes back to my sort of original answer about how americans are viewing football particularly premier league is for a while most european football teams were going for sort of one one and a half times the revenue multiple and with that those those are the prices we're seeing for the french belgian dutch teams that are being bought by these multi-club groups they're going for basically one times you know their annual revenue um premier league as being this sort of pre- premium product was going for sort of a typical club is going for one and a half two times the big six were always going for more for the reasons we've discussed I think they've. I think the multiple has sort of gone up for everyone. Sort of, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Chelsea really raised eyebrows, and the people that are kind of almost evangelical about this, there is there's, there is a sort of group who are like, no, no, we've massively undervalued football. We've undervalued sports franchises. That asset class thing. God, trust me, look at them. The, the, you know, the, the bubble will not burst, and we haven't even. The, the stuff I hear is things like football's the most popular game in the world it's not even the biggest sport in the three largest markets in the world china india and north america you start to hear that sort of stuff you start to hear you know why are we bothering with these ridiculous tv deals and these auctions why do we you know when are we going to get you know genuine streaming when are we going to monetize man united's hundreds of millions of fans in in you know you start to hear this stuff and you start to go yeah yeah these these, these clubs are massively undervalued and then you forget they all lose money every year but anyway this is what's going on out there so what's what's everton worth well, let's have a look around. So I think Newcastle is, you know, by all means, you're the Everton fans on this, on this, on this chat. You, you tell me where you think you sit in the pecking order. But Newcastle, um, one club city with a big stake stadium built. Okay, a bit shabby. Uh, training ground's a bit of a mess. But their finances were tidy. They had a lot of runway because, he, he, you know, in terms of FFP. Uh, and he, they went for 300, 305 million. Now, Burnley, oh dear, they went for, you know, best part of about 180. I think, you know, Southampton, they bought 80%. So I think it valued them at similar, maybe, you know, 150-ish, 180-ish. Um, Chelsea, 2.5 billion. Um, the weird one is West Ham. Now that deal, but again, he bought, you know, 38, whatever it was, percent. But it valued the club at about 600 million. Why? Because they have an amazing stadium. It might not be the most amazing football stadium, but they have a very, very amazing sweetheart deal there. Someone built them a stadium, has given them a fantastic deal. Someone pays the upkeep of it. And it's in London. I'm sorry, there is a London premium. So where does Everton sit? I would say it sits around Newcastle. Now, if he's running around asking for 500, even if he's sort of, you know, the post-Chelsea buzz... All right, I'll give him, I'll bump it up maybe to 350, 400. Particularly if he can get some of those people who lost out there and have money burning a hole in their pocket and they want to buy a sports franchise and they want to buy a Premier League club. But 500 million? Hmm. There is, one, there is one difference between Newcastle and I, you know, I'd argue there are quite more than one difference in Newcastle and Everton. But I think that there is one critical difference about the valuation of the club, which is we own our stadium and we own the site our new stadium is, is being built on. 
and Newcastle don't own theirs. And I think that does make a difference to the valuation and the asset base that the club brings to it, albeit land in... Newcastle Newcastle own their stadium. I thought thought he was owned by... I could be wrong, and if I'm forgiving you, I thought he was owned by the City Council. No, well, I don't know, as far as I know. Uh, and if they, if it is, it'll be one of those sort of freehold situations and they own, yeah, they, own the fab- that, they, they own the fabric of the building. Either way, it wouldn't be like the uh, a local council would foreclose on them anyway. But no, exactly, it, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, and, and in truth, it's not unlike West Ham. It's not like Landon L4, tragically and, and wrongly, yeah. is, is, is as valuable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, th- yeah. I think there is a... Uh, I, but, I think there is clearly a global support, you know, support base that Everton have that yeah. I think can, yeah. can be tapped into. Everton are the yeah. name. There is a football heritage there. There is a, a recollection of yeah. the football greats yeah. playing at Goodison. I, I think there there is a global sports base. Five hundred million sounds sounds on the high side to me. And indeed, all all of the credible people like Matt from or Joyce from yeah the, the guys at the Telegraph, the, the really credible football journalists have all said in in their. Uh, writing about this, the big stumbling block is price, mm. and that it does feel to me like that. Yeah, that, that five hundred is at, right at the top, beyond the top end, if if anything, of yeah. possible valuation that that Mashiri might get. I completely understand why people might be putting it out there that Mashiri wants five hundred million as a negotiating tactic, if nothing else. I mean, truth, why not? What Mashiri really wants is a, is a bidding war. Yeah. Because that's the value of the club was going to get given up. The, the, the 500 million is only part of the price because you've got the rest of the stadium. Let's say, let's say the stadium is like one third uh, built and one third paid for. So you've probably got another 350 million to spend on the stadium. You've got the next two years' losses to, to cover at, as, as a minimum, which is probably anywhere between 75 and 100 million over the next two years. So you're already around about a billion pound mm. before you even look at what is it that we have to do with the squad. Now, yeah. you can argue that we sell DCL, we sell Richarlison, we generate profits, we sell Pickford and we you know, generate profits and, and, and we bring players in. But we as Evertonians know probably more than anybody else that recruitment is a dangerous game. And much of our recruitment over the last six years has been disastrous. So from, a, from an investor perspective, um, how much is the equity worth given the, the liabilities going forward? But the liabilities going forward are uh, the stadium and they are covering um, the losses. And they're also, from a, um, from a football perspective, how much do we have to spend in order to make the Everton squad competitive? So when you add up all of those and you pick a number in terms of what you have to do in order to make the Everton squad competitive, when you add up all of those, they must surely squeeze um, the value of the equity because then you've also got like £130 million of debt, of external debt. Forget Mashiri's debt for a second. You've got £100 quid that's owed, owed to rights and media funding. You've got £30 million that's owed to Metro Bank. And all of a sudden, this £500 million figure that Mishiri is asking for or is suggested in the media that Mishiri is asking for seems like an extraordinary figure. 
Well, can I ask yeah. you a question and get, get your take on something, which is sure. my assumption would be that large chunks of the stadium would, would be debt financed. And what Spurs did, and it makes a lot of sense, it, it, stadiums are pretty easy to get funding for mm-hmm. because you can be guaranteed there is a long-term ticket revenue that, that pays the interest on it. It is broadly equivalent to a mortgage as opposed to kind of credit card debt. Uh, and but it, it is your assumption that the and some of the things I've been reading is the assumption is the new owners will be expected to fund the stadium themselves on top of the price they pay for Mashiri. That felt to me unnecessary given the ability to fund the stadium through you know, relatively short, long-term cheap borrowing through through a smart move and a credible set of investments. So are you assuming that the stadium would be paid for from the pockets of the owners or from a borrowing? If, if, you, if you look at the two, it's, it's a really good question, Richard. If you, if you look at the two situations which are most similar to Everton Stadium, Arsenal and Tottenham, okay, Arsenal, albeit you know, many years ago now, um, they, did, they both did the same thing. They had uh, construction financing, which was typically five-year debt, which saw them from where Everton are now to the point where the stadium was open. And once the stadium was open and once the income streams from the stadium were established, ticket price, attend, you know, capacity, uh, how much of the capacity was utilised by, by fans, then you can go to uh, post-construction debt, which is what both Arsenal had in 2006 and what Tottenham had once, once their stadium was open, where they had, you know, a portfolio of, of, of debt instruments ranging from 10 years to 30 years at an average rate of 2.9%. Mashiri's approach was entirely different. Mashiri wanted what Arsenal and Tottenham got after their stadiums were open prior to construction. Now, that in itself may be not such a huge leap because what you're saying to prospective lenders is, look, this is the position we'll be in in two or three years' time. Um, we might pay a small premium for that two or three-year period, but actually, if you look beyond the two or three-year period, not much changes over the next 20, 30 years. We build a stadium, we fill it, we price it accordingly, and there's you know this amount of revenue that's gener- generated from it. And that's fine. But what the lenders said was, okay, in isolation, that, that doesn't seem like such a bad deal, and, and we could possibly do that at a slightly higher price than, for example, Tottenham have done, uh, notwithstanding what, what you said, Matt, about the London sort of effect. But the underlying business doesn't support the case for building a stadium. And, and why does it not do that? Yes, well, we know that Goodison Park is old. We know that there's a massive waiting list for, for um for season tickets. And we know that the price that people pay at Goodison is much less than people pay elsewhere. But the way that you run your business doesn't suggest that we as the lenders have any confidence in you as the management team. And that's that, I think, is the big difference. And I think that's the reason why we're in the position we're in now, where... Okay, COVID has an effect, and I have to you know, hold my hand up and say that's something that you know, nobody could have ever forecast. But we're in a position we're in now because ultimately because of how poorly the club has been managed in, in, in the six years since, since Mishiri has taken place. There's the 
the classic build an asset and finance it long term on the on, on, on the back of the revenue that the asset will generate. Nobody has an argument with that. But ultimately, um, you know, and, and I, I, I come from a city background, even if it don't sound like it. I come from a city background. The first thing you're taught when you when you evaluate a business is, is that you look at the quality of the management. Right. So no matter how strong the business case is, no matter what sector they're in, and you know, as Matt said, the sector is very attractive because it's Premier League football and it's attractive to US investors for all the reasons, currency, the fact that it's cheap, the fact that you can generate profits long term. That's you you tick all of those boxes, but at the end of the day, you come back down to what's the quality of the management? Because in any sector, you have good businesses and you have bad businesses. And if you've got a good business in a good sector, fantastic, you made lots of money. But if you've got a bad business in a good sector, you still lose money. And that's, I think, just me speaking personally, I think that's the position that we are in at Everton. And I think that's the reason why ultimately covid and Ukraine have obviously added to that. But ultimately, that's why we're in the position that we're in. And that's why after six years, Fahd Mashiri is a four-seller. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to that, Paul. Um, I think, you know, it's, I'm glad you mentioned COVID because things, you know, there's been there's all kinds of COVID impacts that are still working their way through the system. Yeah. The Premier League did, did, did weather it better than all the other leagues. And it's, and it's, it's is therefore relatively stronger but uh for a club like everton that have this this issue they have to overhaul their squad um the transfer market is is has been badly impaired by covid and you know it's only really the premier league that that and and, and one or two others that are buying anyone so this you know one, five years ago everton might have been able to ship out five players this this summer for for, for reasonable cash i you know, I, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be the case. I mean, maybe, 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 maybe it is. I, you know, the squad better than me, but I don't think, I don't think there's, there's, there's half a I mean, dozen transfer in, fees. In there. truth, no, I don't think. I mean, in truth, I think we probably have got to accept reasonable bids for any player that any club yeah. puts in for at the moment. I think we have three. I think we have two, one really good asset, two really quite decent assets. And after that, some players who we probably could get some money for if only there was some interest in them. You know, the really good asset, I think, is Richarlison, who, who is, let's not forget, Brazil's number nine. Uh, there's a kudos in the cash around Brazilian players. That means they're transferring, you know, you read Soconomics and stuff, there, there is a tra- higher transfer value for people like people like that. And again, if they were a bidding war, we could get proper money for him. Calvert-Lewin is a proper asset, albeit he's had a, a difficult season. And to be honest, he's probably worth more last summer than he is now. Pickford is now establishing himself as a decent asset. He's undoubtedly... Good to see if Aaron Ramsdale's performance the other night, <laughs> number one. Uh, and, you know, as, as a goalkeeper who frankly kept us up uh, mm. at the end of, end of last season. Had a, he's been brilliant for two years, despite all this rubbish you read about him being good for England and bad for Everton. It's, not, it's, not, it's no longer true. And the, uh, I think we then have players like Decora, like Mina and Allen, who there is a value for, particularly from, from Italy, where... Uh, but they're coming to, they're coming into the last year of the contract. They're on big wages. In truth, it's players like that and Andre Gomez and others whose transfer value, I think, has shredded. And in truth, we would probably look to get rid of now for relatively small transfer fees as long as we can get all of their wages off the 
off the books. I think Mina's a really good player. I think he's by far our best defender. And you look at the win ratio when he plays versus when he doesn't, suggests it makes a massive difference to Everton when he's fit. But his fitness record means it's, it's, you know, it's really difficult to commit you know, something like the 120 grand a week wages that he, he receives at the moment. Delph, again, made a real difference at the end of the season when he was fit, but it was right the club let him go because he simply couldn't justify £90,000 a week wages for a club in our position for a player who was playing a quarter of the games each each, each season. And, you know, there, there is, though, I think, a spine of decent decent young players. So it's, it's not hopeless. I think as, I, I, I think the Tarkovsky signing is smart for what it's worth. I think he, he fills a hole. He does it for really you know, relatively low costs, given the immortalisation on him is, is low because it's free transfer. I think he makes the club five to... 10 points better on his own next season given the difference that Mina Mina makes when he's fit and if he can replace that 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 makes a big difference I think having Calvert-Lewin back makes five five six seven points difference next season given the gap between the quality of Lewin Calvert-Lewin versus Rondon I think the I, I think having one you know a new defensive midfielder makes some difference next season there is a world in which Everton don't have to change their squad that much to turn us from, you know, the 16th best team in the division to the 10th best team in the division. And it feels to me that's a realistic ambition for a Frank Lampard's team next season. If we can get a top half, you know, it's not incredible to say we can get a top half finish next season. And with Thelwell, you know, seeming to have got a stronger hand inside the club than some of his predecessors. And that's really, really important to, to pulling it off and it does feel with some big contracts expiring next summer as well and the ability to rotate the squad a bit like there is a bit of a window now that if we are really smart and really strategic like Palace were last summer we can capitalise on that and, and and within two or three years be back you know com- competing for seven you know seventh and eighth and use that as a platform to build on I don't think that's fanciful but it does require significantly better decision-making the club has managed over the last six years. And it, because, you know, we've blown a window when Mashiri arrived when he talked about there being a kind of window to, to get in the Champions League. There was because some of the top six then were, were some of the big four were faltering. That, that, that was blown. We blew another opportunity a few years later when the first tranche of bad signings left and there was some money to spend and we, we spent it badly. And now's a third opportunity. And if we blow this... We are in massive, massive trouble because that you know we were we were two goals away from relegation this season, and there's another old version next. You know, I painted a rosy picture next season. There's another version next season where yeah. we got exactly you know, we get some injuries, we get a couple of more bad refereeing decisions. We're in exactly the same place yeah. next year as we are this. So, Matt, before before you say your bit, in answer to Richard's um, excellent mm. contribution, what has to change at Everton? There's a follow-on question after this, okay. but for for both of you, and, and and I'll put my my top and in. What has to change at Everton to um, stop the mistakes that were made this year, uh, and to make us some you know a, a more sensibly run football club, just purely from a footballing perspective, uh, as against what we've done previously? Am I allowed to say be more like Liverpool? Yeah, you uh, say uh, whatever you want. You know, I've been on Man United podcasts, and that's been my my answer for them. You know, it's it's. I'm, I'm sorry to say this. You know, they they are bloody well run. They they they've made mistakes. They made plenty of mistakes along the way, but in terms of um, you know the the US ownership groups, 
you know, they, they, they put bodies on the ground. They've been um, what, humble what enough. What does that mean? Well, they haven't tried to manage it from the States. They've sent good people over. They've sent good FSG, bright young things over to go learn the trade and actually base themselves in Liverpool. That comes up all again and again. And then they've, they, you know, they've gone out and they've been, they've applied a lot of the lessons that they learned at the Boston Red Sox, you know, the use of data, not just on the playing team, but use, you know, what they know, what they know about their customers. Um, they're, they're, they're just a well-run outfit and they have proper succession planning. So Michael Edwards goes, Julian Ward comes in. You look at the way they 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 do the succession planning in the team. They're just good. They're just good. Now, everyone's everyone can see that. And Man City are pretty good as well. Um, and the, I talk to people at football clubs all the time. And there's some re- there are bright people at every football club. Mm. And and they are going out and they're starting to like realize that, that, that to go back to your quality of management answer quality of people bright bloody people you know people that you know look at any other sector could be supermarkets banks clever people are good and sometimes you just have to look in sort of unusual for your industry maybe you have to sort of cast your net a bit wider but but like big brains help so i think there are some easy wins for a club like everton that is clearly punching below its weight its historic weight the weight of its fan base you know just the potential there massively punching below its weight it could do it's, it's been like kind of um i've just been doing youth cricket and we're, we're not very good in any department of the game uh but you know what that's an opportunity right we can we can we can be so much better by just running better fielding better catching better bowling straighter defending the straight ones and like the list is long yeah. and if i start if i start improving a couple of those so Everton, Everton got a long list. Um, and the other thing, because you know, I, I quite enjoyed Richard's, Richard's optimism. I, 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 you know, because I had a conversation with a big Evertonian about this not that long ago. Where I started off bleak. And I, sort of, I said, well, hold on a minute. Everton until sort of City came along. Were, what were you, the fourth, fifth most successful team before City started winning all these trophies? When, when you, in terms of silverware, when you, just, you were just buying Arsenal, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. So that wasn't that long ago. I think we're still fourth, actually, in the league championships. One yeah, league championship terms. Fine, fine, fine. So, so there you go. You're not just you're not Newcastle. You're not Leeds. You've got you've won stuff. I remember you being really good in the eighties. And I, you know, that's that's another. You've probably done that podcast already. But anyway, right. So, so that's in people's memories. And then the stadium. You're absolutely right when you sort of talked about well, it's a billion really because you got to do the stadium. But here's the thing: building stadiums is really hard. As as umpteen clubs have discovered, as the club I just support, I think Southend United, the, the funding of stadiums is really hard. No, not no, no, the, but, but, no, but no, 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 no. I'd say it's all hard. Oh. Finding that finding the piece of land, having a council that likes you and wants yeah. to work with you, having it's all hard. Honestly, I mean, the building is, of course, it's tricky. And the, by the way, the price has gone up in the last few years. So whatever price they're telling you, add thirty five percent to that. As 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 Chelsea's owners are discovering. Uh, just the price of turning on the cement mixes has gone up. Everything's gone up. So yeah, good luck trying to build that stadium for whatever number they were talking about last year. But the point is, you have a piece of land, you've got a nice picture, you've got a council, you've got people in the city that want this to happen, badly want this to happen. That's a positive. 
That means and it is to Mashiri's credit a great site as well. It's a site where you can really see the the, the transformation of the way in which you could sell hospitality, yeah, you know, kind of commercial opportunities from that site. I mean, it, it is Mashiri who I'm pretty critical of's greatest uh, success in his time as Everton is his determination to free up that site compared to some of the other sites that we've looked at over the last twenty years. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Get that stadium stadium built in a in a timely, reasonably timely manner for a, a a budget that isn't blown do you know what everton might be worth a billion with the stadium right and the premier league status well we're, we're committed to the stadium now you know, the only issue about the stadium is whether we can pay for it so you know we signed the contracts langer rock are, are, are the main contractors it's going to get built as long as we can pay for it so that that is going to happen um, okay, so we've talked about Everton's situation. We've talked about who you know, potentially might be uh, the investors that come in. Richard, in, in terms of John Thornton particular, particularly, you know, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of talk about uh, his uh, political um, allegiances, let's say, Maybe we can comment on that. And then finally, because conscious of time, uh, we can have a few comments about what would you what would you do differently at Everton than is being done currently under new ownership? So if, if you were given the responsibility of managing Everton, be it the chairman or be it the CEO, what would you do differently? But firstly, um, Richard, in terms of John Thornton, because that's obviously, you know, at least on social media, has caused um, quite an issue. You're quite right, Paul. I mean, the starting place for this one is the photo of, of John Thornton having lunch with Nigel Farage yep. and Steve Bannon that went around on social media, and I think caused a lot of concern amongst many, many Evertonians whose political values are not the same as, as Steve Bannon and Nigel Farage. And for people who don't know Steve Bannon, he's, he's a lead, leading advisor to Donald Trump and has since gone from there to try to set up a network of right-wing populist parties like Marine Le Pen in France, Victor Orban in Hungary. And in fact, that lunch was tr- trying to get a small, quite right-wing Belgian party into this into this network. And I think that sounding alarm bells for a lot of a lot of people on social media uh, doing some digging though it's a much more complicated picture that that emerges a, a picture of a guy who let's not forget runs a gold mining company gold mining is one of those industries like oil drilling that you have to be pretty politically switched on and pretty politically connected and you cannot it's really easy to get done over and you cannot afford to uh, uh, get on the wrong side of the powers that be and this, so as well as the links to the Donald Trump administration, where uh, John Thornton represented Donald Trump in trade talks with China, where he's clearly got very close links indeed. Uh, on the other side, he's also the uh, very closely associated with the Brookings Institute, which is the leading kind of liberal leaning, Democrat leaning think foreign affairs think tank. Uh, he's advocated close ties between China and America at a time when most people of the kind of Steve Bannon way of thinking have advocated, you know, distancing and a kind of trade war between US and China as well. So his views are not kind of conventionally uh, Trump- Trumpian. Uh, what the picture that's presented for me is of a pragmatist, the guy who not wants to make money and the guy who's going to leverage political connections, whoever is in power, in order to carry on his business. And it, it strikes me that, you know, you can have 
views around the morality of palling around with Steve Bannon. I do personally. You can have views around links with a pretty unpleasant regime in China. I do as well. You can have views around the way in which you know people at the highest echelons of US business, you know, consort with both sides pretty evenly. However, the picture praise is a hard-headed pragmatist who would do what it takes to 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 stay ahead. And in truth, in that, Everton need a bit of that. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. I, I sort of tend to agree with that, actually. So let's assume that we have an individual who sort of passes the smell test, albeit marginally, from, from, from what you said, Richard. Um, Compared to Alicia Osmanoff? I mean, I think, I think in all of them, <laughs> yeah. if, if, if yeah. you're looking at morality, then people with very close associations to Vladimir Putin, I, you know, this, don't pass the smell test. Yeah, I think I think that's a very fair comment as well. Um, has the ability to fund both the purchase of the club and uh, the future capital requirements. The thing that's outstanding is what is it that they do with the club that changes the way that the club operates and the, and the way that the club performs. And Matt, I'm, I'm, I'm handing you a hospital pass here in terms of saying, what is it that they have to do in order to change Everton's fortunes? I, I, I've spoken at length at Norsian about what I think the situation is, but I'd be delighted to hear what you say. Well, yeah, it's, it's that bad cricket team analogy again. There's, 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 you know, lots and lots of little things you can improve that will, that will, you know, was it marginal gains? Um, I think, Looking from the outside in, I'm not an Everton specialist, but yeah. I think over the years I've I've always wondered who's in charge. You know, where, what is there a clear strategy at Everton? What, what what are they trying to be? You know, is it is it enough for Everton just to be the anti-Liverpool? Uh, is it to be you know the people's club? I know I know it's nice and it 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 it, it feels good, but what does that mean from a sort of business point of view? Because because these are businesses, and you know. What you can put on the park makes you a better team, and there's a virtuous circle, right? And I just, like, who's in charge? How is Everton sort of monetizing its brand, if you like, this sort of people's club, this sort of kind of softer, nicer, warmer, you know, less less corporate Liverpool? Um, you know, I mean, you know, so there's that. I just, I've always found like the board a bit confusing. You know, what's what's Kemright really doing there now? You know, it, it, how hands-on is Mashiri? What is Usmanov up to? I know there's been CEOs that have been, you know, that have passed through. You know, the CEO now, you know, what, what, what is that? What is she up to? What is she doing? Um, yeah, it's just sort of a kind of who's in charge? What's what, what's the clear strategy? What's the plan here? That's the sort of big stuff, I suppose. But then, hmm. you know, Everton, I think, has got away from it. You know, developing players a little bit. You know, I think you could do better there. I think you just got to buy better, buy and sell better. I mean, you know, so having a good director of football, having a good scouting network. You know, you, you know, the eye test plus good data. You know, and, and an American businessman, American sort of sports entrepreneurs always talk about this stuff, and I think they take it very seriously, particularly if they come from U.S. sports, where. While it is easy to be critical, like, you know, a bad team gets the first draft pick, it, it, it is a very 
the, you know, the, how they identify and how they scout talent it is a very competitive market. You know, they're taking punts on 19, 20 year olds and they're building their franchises around it because of the whole salary cap thing. It is it is a really complicated mathematical way of putting it's like, it's like fancy football, but like 3D. It's very complicated. So they're kind of good at that. They're good at contracts. They're good at identifying talent and working out where people are. So so a little bit of rigor, a little bit of kind of big picture, you know, who's in charge and where are we going? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. I know. Sorry. There, it, it, there isn't an easy solution. I think Everton have been massively underwhelming. And um, I think some, some agents have had too much influence. Um, and I think there's been, you know, too much turnover of, 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 of key people. I think what you're saying is governance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard, do you, do you want to add to that? I agree. For me, it's clarity. Of, it's it's having a club strategy. That means yeah. a strategy on the pitch, driven by footballing people. We need to leave Kevin Thelwell supported and informed by Frank Lampard to make footballing decisions. He he comes in. Thelwell comes in. I think with a lot of confidence with Everton fans at the moment, we do seem to be getting a bit better at some of this kind of stuff over the last few months. And certainly seems to be a much more coherent strategy around the links between the academy and the first team, which is thoroughly to be welcomed because Matt's completely right. You know, for a club that's got a track record of developing young players, we've been underwhelming over the last couple of years uh, and getting, getting that pathway right. But in truth, we've, you know, I think I, I even read it in the, in the Athletic and it's absolutely right. Agents talking of having to get four different sign-offs on buying players at Everton. You've got to get Mashiri, you've got to get Mashiri's favourite agent, you've got to get the director of football and you've got to get the chairman. And they're all working to different strategies, they're all talking to different people. And in, in that confusion, we sign the wrong players and we sign players for the wrong reasons. And that's ultimately why we've got worse year on year, every year for the last six years, with the exception of last year, when we had a manager who's, who's just won the Champions League. And the and so for me, in the end, it's about the quality of the decision-making, the quality of the strategy we have. But what's tied to that then is a commercial strategy that's linked to the footballing strategy. It's building, it's building the brand, it's building support base, and it is being able to commercialise the club better to up the level of income. Because in truth, we can't afford the wage bill we've got at the moment, let alone the wage bill that we if we improve the squad. And... We've got something like the seventh, eighth highest wage bill and on our performance last time, the 16th best team that, you know, if you have the eighth, seventh highest wage bill, you should have the seventh best team. And if you're really good at what you do, you can have the fifth best team and build your base. No, we were very, you know, we are even on my optimistic scenario, we're three or four years away from doing that. And that's if everything goes well. And I, I, you know, to get that, we have to be really smart in what we do. We have to make the right decisions. We have to do it with a clear and coherent strategy with everyone in the club pulling together at every level. And I'm afraid after six years, I don't have confidence that the current ownership and leadership of the club have the capacity to do that, whatever lessons have been learned and whatever apologies have been made for the mistakes of the last few years. Uh, and that's why I would look at any takeover kind of with, with a cautious welcome. Um, thank you, Richard. <laughs> Spot on. Matt, final question to you. And it's late in the evening, I know, for you guys. A, do you think that the um, takeover, uh, do, do you think that Mashiri um, is going to sell? And B, is it going to be Thornton or is it going to be somebody else? Yeah, good questions. Uh, 
a takeover is going to happen. Yeah. A takeover is going to happen. He, I think the plan, or well, how many plans he's got, but a plan that is doing the rounds is that he wants to retain about 10%. So mm. Bashir is going to sell about 85% of the club. Um, I think he's going to sell it to an American group. I don't think it's going to be Thornton. I wish I knew which group it will be. And maybe Thornton will join the, this, this group. But I don't think, we haven't mentioned his name yet, I don't think the Kenyan-led Thornton-Kaminsky group is the group that is furthest along, that is Mashiri's favourite. I, I, I've got, honestly, four or five people telling me it's not going to be that group. It's not going to be the Kenyan-led group. It's quite a bombshell to finish the podcast on. Yep. <laughs> can you can you add anything more to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on, Matt. Come you, on. you must be able to do that. <laughs> no, I've given lots of clues. No, I have well. No, no. I don't think I don't think it's the Look, I don't think it's going to be the Peter Kenyon League group. Or I, I don't think it's a group that's being led by Peter Kenyon. Who's going is going to close this deal. Let me finish it this way then. I suppose it doesn't really matter whether it's Kenyan-led or whether it's somebody else. What matters is their ability to uh, fund the purchase, fund the capex that is required in the future, and the quality of the management team that is going to do, Richard, what what you just said in terms of improving the performance of the overall club. So, um, I think all Evertonians listening to this and the vast majority of people listening to this will be Evertonians is uh, maybe we shouldn't get hung up on, on a name which two weeks ago wouldn't probably have meant much to most Evertonians. What we need is a new a new owner for the reasons that we've talked about, an owner that is uh, able to fund the purchase, able to fund what's required to build the stadium, able to fund the losses, able to fund the, um, the the change in the squad, subject to profitability and sustainability. But I think more than anything else is able to bring a management team into Everton Football Club that can recognise the potential of the football club and develop that and actually execute against that, that, that potential. Yep. Good. Got agreement. Yeah. Richard's go, nodding. Go, go do I, it. I, I, look, I, 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 I agree. I don't, you know, I, I don't know the people who work under under the chairman and the chief executive. I, I make no comment at all on their abilities. No, I mean, that's pretty, fair. Pretty good, pretty good job. But uh, you know, ultimately, a team is as good as its leadership, and that that's, I think, where we need change. Cool. Right. Listen, maybe um, when things develop and we know more about the situation and when something happens. Uh, the three of us can get back together and see, see see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I hope, hope you won the cricket tonight. Don't know if no, you did or not. No, no, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, Richard. As always, thanks for your time. Thank and, you. Uh, we will speak again soon. Thank you.